Deep in the farthest recesses of the most distant jungle lies a city. A city populated by the most mysterious, terrifying, and downright grotesque denizens ever seen by mortal eye. Here, in the darkened corners of this cavernous locale sits an ordinary, average brick building with an innocuous, ordinary, average, blinking neon sign which reads, On Air. It is here where each week, Seth Breedlove and Mark Matsky convene to discuss the greatest mysteries the world has ever known. Now, strap on your hiking boots, grab your trusty walking stick, and don't forget the bug spray as we begin our journey through Monsteropolis. Uh, testing. Oh, good. Okay. Hi, this is Monsteropolis, a show about anomalies, legends, and monsters. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Seth Breedlove. We've wasted almost 20 minutes trying to get everything set up. Uh, this is a show. I already said what the show's about. I'm joined as always by my pal, Mark <laughs> Matsky. Yes, you are. Hello. Uh, so we are in the new uh, SCM HQ. This is our first official Small Town Monsters episode recorded in the new studio what's your read on the place oh it's i well i got to watch a trailer and i love the new setup it's like i'm looking at all of the um gene saint jean statuary mm-hmm. it's very cool so this room's going to be very gene saint jean heavy there's a yeah. bray road beast prototype statue oh. behind you oh my there's i don't know oh, if you yeah. noticed but when you come in the front door there's a Mothman hanging sculpture that Gene sent me oh, above really? the door. I miss that. Um, it's it's that you know initial sensation of you don't know where to look. There's too much. Yeah, there's too a much lot stuff. Of, a lot of Gene present here. Cool. Um, okay, so this is um, the week before Christmas when we're recording this. So that means you're about to hear our our annual ghost story episode next week oh. which is the week of christmas and um but, but I've, got now a good, I've got a good one i don't know if i've got a good one really to be honest with you i read about half of it and i was like this is fine <laughs> so. i had a great one but it was 44 pages it would have been like a two-hour epic that is the, thing. the problem i'm having with these ghost story episodes is finding stories that are good but aren't like yeah like, basically like 30, novella words. Yeah. yeah so the one i found is like four thousand words which mm-hmm. is still pretty long but i think one year though i read it might have been last year i did like eight or nine thousand it was just way too long <laughs> yeah. and I, I told Adrian, i fell asleep and came back <laughs> I, I look forward to this show because I like to listen to you read the stories. I do not love doing the show because it doesn't play into, I don't have many strengths, but it definitely doesn't play into one of my strengths because I'm not good at reading things aloud. But um, I do enjoy the show. It like gets me in the festive Christmassy kind of mood. Um, okay, so if you're watching the show, uh, our viewers on squad small town monster squad are, are able to watch the show you'll actually be able to see this lovely studio that mm. we're recording in if you notice the mess behind mark that's there because we're still getting moved in um 
but eventually this will be a very nice setup and we'll we'll probably be using better better cameras too but for now this is where we're at if you're a small time monster squad member you're watching it you'll also be able to watch Squadcast. um I, I do really quickly, since this is the official Small Time Monsters podcast, want to mention that we just released The Mark of the Bell Witch. It's now available to watch. Go watch it right now if your heart so desires. Um, you can also check out some of the Mark of the Bell Witch extras that are coming to squad this week. We already posted the K. Ethel Dickerson interview in full. It's about nine minutes long. And then we have another one going up um, today, I believe, with a tour guide at the the Bellwitch Cave, which I'm very excited for people to, to check out. Um, what else do I got? What else do we need? Uh, hauntings. On the Trail of Hauntings starts filming Saturday. That's episode two. Episode one is almost done, and I'm about to announce the official release date. I think it's going to be like the first weekend of January that we're going to drop episode one of On the Trail of oh. Hauntings. So... Um, and again, that's a squad exclusive, uh, and we're, yeah, so you'll want to be squad member to watch that. Uh, Kickstarter launches February 4th. Again, there's more Gene St. Gene stuff involved in this year's, along with some other stuff, including things you're working on, such as a book. Such as a book, yes. Um, exciting. Very exciting. Good, good time. Uh, okay, so we're going to do, uh, we're going to catch up on listener mail is, is the first thing we're going to do. And then we're going to talk about uh, Christmas folklore things. Yes. Christmas oddities. Christmas oddities. Strange, unusual uh, do you type wanna, things. Do you want to... Oh my gosh, there's a lot of emails. It's like... <laughs> there's even more than yeah, I mean, what I, you sent. I, I think so. I said the 100th episode. Um, we had an interview request. Oh. Uh, did you get the CJK... The sightings, original rod second. Yes, yes. Start That'd there. be a great place to start. Yeah, let's start there. Yep. Okay, well, our first email is from Charles, good friend of the show. Uh, this is regarding the original rod segment, uh, piggybacking on our rods, rods giving, I think it was. Sightings television show was the first wide exposure of rods as a crypto subject. They hit the subject up three or four times. They were the first to air the Cave Rods video clip. One man was featured on a follow-up sighting segment who specialized in rod filming using a VHS camcorder under the overhang of his apartment door. I assumed then that the filming technique was the shadow of the overhang blotting out the sun where you could point the camera lens. The cave filming used the overhang of the cave lip in contrast against the skyline to bring out the same video effect of rendering the rods visible to the human eye in a replay of the video footage. Shadow and contrast effect with a low frame rate a la VHS HQ quality 60 minute per standard tape playback. Dr. Bruce Maccabee, then with the U.S. Navy, was the go-to visual effects expert for sightings since the first year. He may have commented on the rods, but I cannot recall, and it is not listed in his on-screen credits, which I looked up on IMDb. The final rod segment was some kind of speculative coverage of rods as weapons that had been milked out and might have been shot in Israel for video analysis. Then sightings dropped the coverage after that anticlimactic ending. Sightings was produced by Henry Winkler and was on syndication distribution through NBC network affiliates, usually seen on late Sunday nights. And there are links. If it's the Henry... The fonts? Yeah, evidently. That's the only Henry Winkler that I... Wow. 
I had no idea about that. That's pretty cool. Um, rods. We once and for all debunked rods. We're the, we're the, <laughs> first, we're the first people. We buried to, it. Yeah, to officially debunk rods. Um, and th- and th- for the most part, I have yet to see any uh, feedback that was negative about that episode. I think people were fine with us putting putting the rods mm-hmm. to bed. I loved sightings. That show was so much fun. I like, did, who hosted that? Did, wasn't there a host? Is that the one that... I forget. I I All that I can remember are segments, so I almost feel like there may have been a narrator. Okay. There, I think there obviously was a narrator, but it wasn't like um, Unsolved Mysteries where mm-hmm. there was uh, like a Robert Stack host segments, things like to, that. I seem to recall doing a lot of sightings watching maybe like a few months before we started filming on the Trail of UFOs. Okay. I think that was like where I turned to for my research. Kind of like inspiration of yeah, sorts. Yeah. Um, I know I did a lot of uh, unsolved mysteries viewing, but I think sightings was in there. Mm-hmm. Good, uh, good email. Did you want to touch on anything that he mentioned in that? No, I mean, there's links there too, but I, you know, well, um, I think we'll leave rods there. I, I, you know, Charles, um, I have to say, is a very, very thorough investigator and he'll send me things from time to time. Like he also followed up on Chupacabra and had some exciting information. I don't know if I talked to you about this or not. Maybe not, but he's traced some leads. I'll just leave it at that for now. He found a Chupacabra. He he traced traced all the leads right back to the original Chupacabra. There's one living in Miami, I think. South Beach. His name's Juan. Uh, all right, we got more. All right, yeah. Hey, Mark and Seth. I'm a fan of Monstropolis and STM and really enjoy listening to your show and watching the movies you produce. Keep up the great work. I had a few ruminations slash questions to run by you guys. Wanted to get your thoughts if possible. Number one. First off, I'm looking forward to seeing your movie regarding The Bell Witch. I'm a native of Middle Tennessee, and I grew up reading and hearing all sorts of stories about that phenomenon. I found it to be a genuinely scary story as a kid, and I still, to this day, find it very chilling. I have a buddy who once said, when we were kids, something along the lines of, Guys, don't even mention her name. She knows we are talking about her. Mm -hmm. Needless to say, the story made an impression upon us growing up. You want to react to any of that? Because it moves in a completely different yeah the only thing i can say is that that was that statement don't even mention her name was said by brandon barker as well brandon has a bunch of stories and i'm really excited to get the uncut version of his interview out there because he Mm -hmm. has a really interesting story about his introductions to the bell witch and one of them includes him believing he saw her as a child at a mall a shopping mall and somehow that's like the intro- his, one of his introductions to the Bell Witch as a character. He makes a statement in the movie about how, I think he does, I think it's in there, about how even if you don't believe in her, you respect her. You need to respect her. Maybe it's not in there. I can't remember. But um, I came away from that project with the same kind of thinking. Mm-hmm. Like I don't necessarily know that there was a real Bell Witch, although there's some really big stuff that Pat Fitzhugh is kind of dropping right now that relates back to a written account from 1820 that we actually have hmm. a written account of someone talking about the bell witch. Oh wow. Um and it's a really interesting story and it would it would immediately prove that the story did exist before Ingram. A lot of people believe Ingram invented the story. 
Heather also has a newspaper article from, from earlier than the publication of the book that mentions offhandedly the Bell Witch of Adams, Tennessee from like 1880-something or 1870-something. Mm-hmm. So, so anyway, there's some really cool stuff there. But that statement about not even mentioning her name, I think Brandon said him and his same friend or his friends kind of had the same thing that they said. You know, he, he's a really unique personality to have involved with that project because he has he's have has a foot in both worlds. You know, he's got that sort of upbringing, having lived close to there, and these personal experiences. Plus, then the academic, mm-hmm. you know, the pedigree now to say it's folklore, but you know, what if it's more than that? It's really interesting. I don't know many other. Um, people in academia who are in that unique position that he's in to have both a personal, like an actual personal relationship to the subject in his upbringing and then sort of a professional angle to take on it. So getting him involved in the the film, I think was a big deal. Credit to Ellie, Eleanor Haskin for pointing us toward that interview. I think, I think this movie, the longer it's, been since I finished working on it. I, I, unlike our other films, I've really grown to love this one mm. more and it just kind of has increased over the, I mean, I came in here one day and watched it, which I don't do. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, a, a big part of that is because of him and Tim and Pat and kind of the, the characters or the people you have just involved in the movie, helping to tell the story. Yeah. It's been very satisfying to see, many of the reviews that are out there that sort of pick up on the things that you hope people will pick up mm-hmm. on, but you never really know for yeah. sure if they're going to latch like on to travel it. Travel channel personalities maybe miss in the watching and then accuse you of being <laughs> shallow travel <laughs> channel. Again, travel channel personalities accusing you of being shallow. Hmm. Um, A conundrum. <laughs> uh I would say, I, I think I said this to Adrian, I believe this is probably our best reviewed movie. Um, the only thing I can think of that would compare where we rarely saw negative reviews was on the trail of Bigfoot. Um, I remember on the trail of Bigfoot had very positive, largely positive reviews. This one has been largely positive. The few I've read that were negative, it was your typical, they didn't convince me the bell, which was real. They didn't have footage of the Bell Witch. Oh, yeah. Or there's also this thing I've read in a couple of places where they said that uh, where there was one review that said that they, they did not believe this was the story I wanted to tell and that it showed. And I was like, no, this is huh. this isn't the story we set out to tell, right. but no movie we've made ended up exactly how we set out to tell the story. So um, we ended up telling exactly the story that we wanted to tell once we realized what that story was. Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting presumption, you know, that someone else would know yeah. the story you're trying to tell. Yeah. Uh, okay. Reviews, reviews, this is the same. <laughs> this is the same issue I had with films like, um, uh, re- film criticism of movies like uh, Batman versus Superman mm-hmm. uh, or The Man of Steel, where the viewer is angry that the film is not the film they wanted. And somehow that is supposed to be valid criticism. Mm. It's not. It's not valid criticism. Yeah, it's just complaining. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right. Off uh, my soapbox. Uh, yes. 
Well, I don't know. Number two. Um, <laughs> have either of you, by chance, seen the web series Hellier by Greg Newkirk and his team? Mm. If so, I was curious what your thoughts were on what they're doing and researching and the angle they're taking. Plus, in season two of the series, they interviewed Woody Derenberger's daughter, and I was curious what your thoughts were on what she disclosed to them. If you haven't seen it, then I won't give it away, but I found the whole piece interesting. What about you, Mark? Well, the the fact of the matter is I've seen about five minutes of Hellier, period. Mm-hmm. So I don't feel like I can really address any, any... Yeah, I can't, because I've never... There, there's really nothing more to it than I haven't sat down and given it a serious look. Mm-hmm. I've been too busy watching Japanese superhero <laughs> episodic television. Good stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've I've um, I've alluded on the show before that I have thoughts on Hellier. I really don't have too many thoughts on Hellier um, beyond the fact that. Uh, it looks great. Carl does a very good job as director of photography on the show. It looks fantastic. It looks like something you'd see on TV. And therein lies my issues with the show, which are it really is a television show that's been turned into a movie or an episodic series, I guess. Um, and I'm a little leery of the fact that it's branded or pr- promoted as being a straightforward documentary when it is clearly a very staged hmm. and I'm not using that in a negative context or negative way. It's a staged show. Um, all I have to do, I'm a filmmaker, so I'm not, I would never bash the show just in the fact that they made something as impressive in itself. But um, having said that, if it's a, if it's a documentary, if it's a straightforward documentary, um, you're not shooting it with prime, uh, anamorphic lenses. Uh, and cause there's, there's just no way to, to do that. Um, and I just, I think, I think the show is as it looks as good as it does because it's staged. Um, I'm assuming they, they, they know going into, you know, each shot, what the shot is going to be. And they sit down and they do the things that they planned out for that shot. And they have conversations that are sort of talked about beforehand. And you do all that on any sort of documentary. We do it on our films mm-hmm. as well. But um, there's a difference in how we promote something like on the trail of versus how we promote the films. And I would say on the trail of is, is what an actual um, verite style documentary series looks like. And Hellier is what a film looks like. And, and I don't, I just don't buy into the fact that it's, it's um, quote unquote investigative. I don't think it actually is. And, and I also think they are leading the story in a certain direction rather than allowing answers to come to them. Um, Do you know what he means about Woody Derenberger's daughter? Have so, you I seen mean, that? The thing about that is they interviewed Tanya, who I also interviewed, mm-hmm. I believe, if, if unless it's one of his other daughters because he does have another daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have not seen that. Um, I think the thing... I think it almost has to be Tanya because I think his other daughter doesn't do, doesn't talk about this. Mm -hmm. Um, So I have opinions on all of that, that I probably shouldn't go into publicly. Not, not on Hellier on, on the Darren Berger story and things like that. And if you're interested in that too, we did a, our own take on the, on the Darren Berger story. I did an interview with Tanya back in 2017. We actually just drove by the place where I interviewed her the other day. Oh, wow. 
brought back some memories. We saw injured Cole. He was hanging out outside. <laughs> Smoking. Yeah. <laughs> we get into Woody, Derenberger, and Men in Black and Injured Cold to a very large extent in on the trail of UFOs, Dark Sky. Ooh. Again, just to clarify, I have thoughts on Hellier. It doesn't mean I am, because I'll probably get accused of bashing the show or something. I, it's not that. I just have thoughts on how the, I guess, the, the promotion of it is done. Because so many people contact me wanting to know why we don't do things like, why why we aren't going more in-depth on things like Hillier does. And I just believe that my approach is very different from theirs. I, d- I really don't have any intention or interest in leading our audience to one conclusion or the next. And I don't think that's the case there. It's just, I guess it's just a different means of, of approaching mm-hmm. the subject. Okay. And number three, finally, I'm not sure if you guys have done an episode of Monstropolis on this or not, but would you be willing to discuss at some point ancient giants and the Nephilim on your show with emphasis placed on the Ohio mounds and the works of L.A. Marzulli and Franz Zimmerman? I'd like to hear your thoughts on that topic if you're willing to entertain it. We we not only are going to do this, but I had just talked to Aaron today about doing it because Aaron's doing some sort of study into all of this. No kidding. And I think we could have a little, a little, uh, we could have a little, I was going to say a little expert. He's our little expert, Aaron. <laughs> um, no, but I, I, I would enjoy talking about this because we've talked a little bit about the giants and the mounds and all that kind yes. of stuff. Um, on the show before. So for sure we should do that. Yeah. I'm, I'm all in. I just, my only hesitation is I don't want to be painted into a corner Mm -hmm. as far as like a conclusion. Like this is definitively what Matsky thinks about Nephilim. We will prove the Nephilim on the show. (laughs) L.A. Marzulli is someone who I have a great familiarity with because when I was first getting into all of this, I, would listen to his interviews and I thought a lot of it was super intriguing and I even own one of his books. Um, but I do have a lot of issues with that line of thinking as well. Agreed. I mean, I, if I see LA Marzulli like on any podcast as a guest, I'll listen to it because he's a great guest. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not endorsing his conclusions per se, but I just enjoy the way that he presents the information and himself mm-hmm. and some of the positions he takes, you know, I'm always interested in the vocabulary that people use yeah. in order to get their points across. And he's very careful in his vocabulary choices mm-hmm. and how he's trying to get certain things um, expressed. So that, yeah. I've always found that interesting. So, yeah. And that's uh, thanks for all you do in sharing stories and giving us an escape into the unknown. And that's Brad from Tennessee. Thanks Brad. Very good comprehensive letter yeah oh okay so this is from our buddy dan and he there's no subject header but he just sent a link to um it's that biofluorescent tasmanian devil image released by the zoo on saturday shows an almost supernatural glow being emitted from the animal's eyes ears and snout yeah i didn't i didn't look at that yet did you i've seen yeah i've seen the image okay it's got like this uh blue glow to it Mm. and it's it's very fascinating from a the standpoint of a mammal giving off that sort of glow it's not reflective it's have it's been absorbed it's light that's been absorbed and is being projected if you will and that of course is going to give 
I think uh, Bigfoot researchers in particular, a lot of ammunition to start speculating about the, um, all of the many reports that have featured some type of glowing eyes that don't seem to, they're not reflective right. in the same way as a, like a deer in the headlights would be. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And let's see next. Oh, this is, this is good. It's this subject line, th- 37th parallel North line. Mm-hmm. Hey, Mark and Seth, I know that I just emailed you with some questions on a previous email, but something else popped in my mind. So I wanted to write before I forget. Are you guys familiar with the whole 37th parallel north latitude line theory? This is, of course, the circle of latitude that is 37 degrees north of the Earth's equator and runs through the middle of the United States. It's been noted that lots of strange occurrences happen around this line. Not too far from my neck of the woods in Tennessee, I can think of the Hopkinsville, Kentucky encounter, the land between the Lakes Beast, the Cape Girardeau UFO crash, and actually Adams, Tennessee is not far off the line either. As you move further west, there have been reports of cattle mutilations, and the Delta base is right there at it as well. Maybe an episode on this might be good. And that's Brad once again. Cool. I is this like similar to like ley lines or what are? I yeah yes okay. And if I'm not mistaken, there's a book that was released a couple years ago that was 37th parallel. Mm-hmm. It was written as a novel, but it was like a novel presumably based in fact. And I think uh, the main thrust of that book was that there's been a lot of UFO sightings along that same Chestnut east Ridge west. doesn't hit anywhere near there? Um, you know, it, it just might. Hmm. I think it, it, it's possible. So, yeah, I mean, that's definitely worthy of yeah. consideration. That would we be should, quite interesting. Discuss that on the show. And here's another letter from, I think it's Paul. Just listen to episode 105 of Monsteropolis, and the subject of Monsters of Caves was brought up. If you guys haven't watched already, there's a show on Amazon Prime called Hellier that dives into window areas, unexplained phenomena, and the caves of Appalachia. Just the Hellier episode of, of Monsteropolis. So the thing about <laughs> caves yeah. is we we kept, uh, they kept coming up during the making of Dark Sky. So I don't know if we'll get into into that or not. As of right now, other than some interviews, they're not featured, but we're actually still talking about going back to West Virginia to do a cave exploration or a mine exploration, cool mine exploration in a place that's said to have active. And you're the person that pointed us to that connection between UFOs and coal mines. So I think that's super interesting and I would, I'm, I'm interested in diving into that a little bit. You know, the thing that makes me think of is just having heard about this today, again, being reminded of the Bell Witch Cave. Mm-hmm. I did not know that there were levels to the cave. Yeah, there's two Can levels. you describe that? Because I don't I, know anything I mean, I still haven't about been in it. there, but all I know is that there's a second level kind of above the the one that you enter. And there's a story, and that's kind of what Aaron played for you in that mm-hmm. clip earlier. Um, there's a story that's in ingram's book or one of the books might be charles bailey bells that involves the children going down into the cave and a friend of theirs going on the upper level and getting stuck in the mud and the witch supposedly pulling him out Hmm. of of the cave and saving his life um but as far as what it looks like i don't i don't know i I still haven't been in it. i haven't seen many pictures of the cave yeah so So i'm just wondering if it's like the did they take people to that second level typically, or is it just the first? Have you been down to Ohio Caverns? 
No. Okay, so I'd we just, to go I there. just took Tommy on like last Saturday. Yeah. It's, first of all, you're almost into Indiana by the time you get mm-hmm. there. I mean, we were like 90 miles from Fort Wayne. <laughs> um, so uh, we we went in there, and they have a level on that. Ca- in fact, there's multiple levels. When you mm-hmm. first come in, the guy says, you walk up to a railing, and he, sa- he was like, do you, if anyone is afraid of heights, don't look down. So you look over the side, and there's the walkway way below, like 40, 50 feet down of the floor you're going down oh, to. Oh, wow. Um, so there's varying levels on that one. But mm-hmm. I, I noticed on the map there's an undeveloped section of the cave, and it's considerably larger than the mm-hmm. version we were in. Wow. And I was like, I because the cave was super cool, but it also very much felt like a tourist attraction mm-hmm. because it's so lit and everything. Yeah. Um, and I was just like, man, it'd be so cool to be in here in like a section that's not this. Or even if they just gave you headlamps and you just walked around without yeah. things lit. Oh, that'd be awesome. Uh, but it it's super cool. If you haven't, I, I think I'm becoming interested in caves because of dark sky and now this, that trip. Um, mm-hmm. I hadn't been in a cave that I could remember since I was real little. So one thing that immediately hit is like almost as soon as you got down and we're really walking through there and it kept getting narrower and narrower. I was like, man, I could get claustrophobic in here real easy. Mm-hmm. Then at one point he took us into a section and shut the lights off to show us how dark it is, yeah. which w- supposedly is as dark as you can find on planet earth, except Tommy was wearing a glow in the dark skeleton t-shirt, which <laughs> cast a glow across wow. the entire room. Wow. So, um, so yeah, it was super cool. I would, I would love to do more with caves. You know, I have this vivid memory of our Falk trip. I really desperately wanted to like wedge in a trip to Mammoth Cave, mm-hmm. but it just didn't work out. The timing didn't work. It's it's amazing you'd say that because if we, we should talk about this because I was think, <laughs> trying to think of ideas for dudes. We oh, and, oh my goodness. And that was something that came to mind because Tommy was really excited about the cave and was hoping mm-hmm. he could go back soon. Ooh. I was like, there's other caves, dude. We'll find yeah. other caves. There's a mammoth cave. In There's fact. a mammoth cave nearby. <laughs> and the best thing about Mammoth Cave is near Cave City is the dinosaur uh, land that yeah. we always drive by on the way yeah. down to Falk, which I stopped at when we were on our way back from, um, man, where did, oh, Adams. From on Adams, back yeah. Adams, we stopped there, yeah. Andy said that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, and I bought Tommy stuff. <laughs> Dude, that would be the best trip. I We, we should consider that. We should. Yes. Does, so at I'm, Dinosaur City, I'm glad we can talk yeah. about this on this show. <laughs> do they? Do, are there like actual dinosaur things there, like fossils? We're going to say they're actual dinosaurs. Yeah, yeah like, man, they're just walking around. No, um, is the Jurassic Park guy there? Does he come out with this? Certainly welcome. Uh, there's certainly <laughs> things that they're claiming are real dinosaur okay. fossils. I would, I would wager no, yeah. but. Um, it's possible. The gift store is all the further we got is the okay. other thing. We didn't actually get into yeah. the exhibit. The attraction. It quote was unquote. kind of, you know, COVID was kind of dying down at that point. It was mm-hmm. midsummer, but, um, they, de- they were still very cautious and you could only get X amount of people into the building. Oh, I see. Time. Um, man, I'm really glad you said this. We got to talk this on, uh, talk about this on the drive down to Bolivar. Okay. Cause I think that's, I think that's what we should do. Yes. Okay. Um, do we have any more? That's letters? all the letters that you sent me. Okay. <laughs> there was a lot. There may be more that exist. There probably are. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we uh, this episode was originally supposed to be entirely about um, Christmas oddities. 
Yes. Mark told me this like last week and after I asked him about it so we so I could quote unquote have time to research. <laughs> I did no research at all. I mean to be fair, it's been a very busy couple of weeks. We're moving everything from the old office into the new office and I'm trying to edit on the trail of Bigfoot the Journey and do trailers for on the trail of Bigfoot the Journey and on the trail of UFOs Dark Sky. Um and we had a release this week, uh film release. So it's been a a hectic week. Oh, as I'm saying that, I just realized I'm on Exploring the Bazaar tonight at 10 p.m. too. Whoa. So, um, how long does that go for? Just an hour. <laughs> oh, <I okay>. hope. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Uh, oh, that reminds me. Andy was interviewed for Cryptid Campfire yesterday. He's been on Bigfoot Society too. Yeah. yeah. So Andy's getting around the podcast, getting some around. run. Yeah. So check uh, check out on the uh, uh, the on the cryptid campfire, <laughs> starring like Andy Matsky. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's it's supposed to drop in in January. Okay, is what I'm told. So keep your ear to the to the mill. Yeah, stone. <laughs> so do you want some Christmas oddity? Just take us here because I got nothing, wanna, okay. and this is all going to be you. Okay. <laughs> well, this I mean this really is born from two areas uh, number one um i like and i've actually i've taught a course in the history of christmas like the development of how the date was selected and it's all that type of thing holiday, right? yeah. <laughs> doggone it i i took five weeks to <laughs> say the same thing <laughs> that you just said in five seconds but no it's like um how all these streams of of myth and folklore and how the early christian church capitalized on existing beliefs to send a new message. So that's part of it. And I like to collect that type of stuff. But what sent me in this direction for Monsteropolis was just a random paging through a book that Andy bought at a used bookstore about American folklore. And this was included in the Pennsylvania Dutch section. Oh, was this story about Christmas Eve in the stable? Wait, there was a Pennsylvania Dutch section of the bookstore. Of the no, of the the book that he bought. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So it like regionally breaks down where the folklore is from. Pennsylvania Dutch is one. Super There's cool. like Southern Appalachians is another. Oh, wow. Um, Deep South like Creole type stuff. Really interesting. And so I started reading this because it was relatively short, and it just it messed with my expectations. I think everyone will get a kick out of the story. So here's a little bit of the informational setup in the book itself. It's uh, this story is called Christmas Eve in the Stable, which sounds benign, doesn't it? No. <laughs> the month of December called in the dialect, forgive me, Grishtmunit is the month of spirits. Then, as at no other time, the spirits are abroad, and he who has been born in this month can see, hear, and speak with them. The activity of the spirits reaches its height on Christmas Eve at midnight when all living nature is moved and becomes articulate. Bees in their hives buzz a language which then and only then can be understood by the hearers. They may even leave the hive, fly around and speak, horses and cattle speak, and tell of things that shall come to pass." That's the sort of the academic setup to the story. But I wanted to stop there and say, this really sets the stage for both the stuff we're going to talk about now and next week, the whole ghost stories at Christmas time. Mm-hmm. And that we've covered this in depth on the last two 
um, Christmas ghost story episodes, but it's this interesting um, delineation between Christmas Eve on one hand and these sort of cultural memories and Halloween on the other, where it seems like in the modern era, Halloween gets all of the scary stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, all the spooky stories and the dead walking. But in the folklore memory of a lot of people groups, it really seems like Christmas Eve was that that time when the veil was most thin and stuff so, like that. So as a expert, do you, is that because of the pagan origins of Christmas? Yeah. Or, it, I mean, yeah, I think it could be that. The certainly. date is what I mean, not the actual oh, origin. Yeah, sure. Christmas, yeah. I mean, the relate back to that, the date, yeah, the date of Christmas itself, the decision of you know, December 25th, that in itself is based, that's a total co-opt of an existing Roman holiday mm-hmm. called Saturnalia, mm-hmm. where people were partying, exchanging gifts, because at this point, the sun was returning. And so the early church saw that and said, well, we've got a sun is returning, returning story, yeah. and we will utilize this pre-existing celebration to help communicate the story. Sure. So a lot of um, Bible commentators are fairly sure that Jesus was probably born more in the spring. Right. But um, so there's there's nothing. I, I think it's a it's a misreading of what the, a Christian church is trying to communicate by having a December twenty fifth celebration of Jesus' birth. And I don't think any Christian is making the claim that. We know the twenty fifth of December born, is right. his birthday, yeah. but it was a it was more of an outreach mission decision on the part of the first Christian missionaries. Okay. Don't reinvent the wheel. We'll just come alongside your celebration and infuse it with with meaning. So that leads us then. This whole idea in the Pennsylvania Dutch communities is that at midnight on Christmas Eve, the animals and presumably in their link to the stable of Bethlehem are given the ability to speak. And uh, if you are born in the month of December, then you have this predisposition to be able to understand them. Oh, Dr. Doolittle. Yeah. <laughs> so without further ado, the actual story. Little. <laughs> there was a farmer of rough speech and of harsh ways toward his horses. He had heard of the mysterious happenings at midnight on Christmas Eve, but would not believe that they were true, and persisted in this attitude despite the asseverations of his friends that they themselves had heard horses and cattle speak at that hour. He would, quote-unquote, see for himself, and only after he had seen with his own eyes and heard with his own ears would he believe. So, one Christmas Eve, several hours before midnight, he stole into the horse stable and hid in a pile of straw that was used for bedding for the horses. At midnight, he heard one horse say to the other, we have a very cruel master, and this night we shall kick him to death. The farmer rose up from the pile of straw and in groping his way to the stable door, was kicked to death by the horses. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Why did he go? I mean, if he knows the horses are going <laughs> to kick him to death, you're... Uh, my grandpa was, you know, raised Amish, so the Pennsylvania Dutch thing is, mm. is like a big family connection for me. I think that's interesting. Yeah. Maybe that was his great-great-grandpa. Oh. He was kicked to death by the horse. Oh, my. The connection is forged. familial connection yeah. to this. <laughs> Synchronicity. Wow. So, yeah, and just as a postscript, this episode combines um, 
Cows in the stable at midnight of evil Christmas with a legend involving prophecy, death in a certain time. Same combination is found in Helen Creighton's folklore of Lunenburg County, Nova Scotia. So, and then there's another um, folk tales in Michigan. So this is one of those folk tales that has a life in different communities, which I think is interesting as well. And uh, you know, the the folklore's folklorist's task in some ways is to try to trace where was it first. I don't know. This book isn't set up to try to answer that question, but pretty cool, odd story. I did not, when I started reading this little folklore story about Christmas in the, the stable, you know, I did not expect it to end in a, a death, a, death. A, kick, a kicking death, homicide, horse homicide. <laughs> that was, that's absolutely the most terrifying <laughs> kind of homicide. Yeah. Um, what do you got? What else? Um, well, there's a, um, Bumble. Story about Bumble. <laughs> That'd be cool. Yeah. Well, there. That's not quite the same thing, but there's a story about a stork. You know how storks yeah. are associated with birth. Babies. That's how and, babies are born. We all know that exactly. <laughs> and this this is the origin story of the storks. I think I've heard this. Have you? Yeah. Yeah. Go. Yeah, okay. I know. So this exists in sort of old English. Uh, it's a Christmas ballad going back. Uh, well, let's see, to at least like the 1500s. Mm-hmm. The stork, she rose on Christmas Eve and said unto her brood, I now must fare to Bethlehem to view the Son of God. She gave the echo his dole of meat. <laughs> Sorry. He stowed them fairly in, and fair she flew, and fast she flew, and came to Bethlehem. Now where is he of David's line? She asked at house and hall. He is not here, they spake hardly, but in the manger stall. She found him in the manger stall with that most holy maid, the gentle stork, she wept to see the Lord so rudely laid. Then from her breast she plucked the feathers white and warm. She strews them in the manger bed to keep the Lord from harm. Now blessed be the gentle stork forevermore, quoth he, for that she saw my sad estate and showed pity. Full welcome shall she ever be in hamlet and in hall, and height henceforth the blessed bird and friend of babies all. <laughs> So and sort of the interpretive part of this says that the tender English ballad tells how the stork became the patron of babies. Supposedly, the verses were found in 1549, handwritten in Old English on the flyleaf of King Edward VI prayer book. The young monarch, then 12 years old, was the only child of Henry VIII and Jane Seymour. The boy, who was highly intelligent but physically weak, died in 1553 at the age of 16. During his brief reign, the Book of Common Prayer was introduced into the Church of England. And it's not surprising that a bird of such handsome appearance and odd habits should excite popular imagination. The stork is an occasional summer visitor to Great Britain, frequent one along the Rhine Valley in Holland, Denmark, Poland, and many other countries. In parts of Germany, there's an old folk belief that storks discover unborn babies in springs or brooks. Sometimes the birds find infants in dark mountain caverns. Often they get babies from beneath stork stones. Boys and girls found in this way are quote-unquote stork children. In some places, it is said that an infant will soon arrive if a stork even flies over a house. Aside from these superstitions regarding babies, all Europeans welcome the stork and claim that her presence brings good luck to the houses where she builds her nest. I had no idea about about any of this stork nonsense. Actually, that wasn't at all what I thought it was. I think at some point I had heard a story about storks, but that wasn't it. Um, okay, we're running out of time here. Do you want to hit? Do you want to hit anything? Do yeah, I just want to mention. Up? Honorable mm-hmm. mention goes to La 
Bifana. Have you heard of La Bifana? No. Uh, this comes from Italy. She's a little old witch woman who was sweeping her house on the night when the wise men came by with presents for Bambino Yezu. The kings asked the old woman to go with them to Bethlehem, but she said she must get on with her work. The kings continued their journey without her. Later, when the sweeping was done, La Bifana shouldered her broom and set out for Bethlehem alone. Somehow she lost her way. She has never found the Bambino, although she has searched for almost 2,000 years. Every year, La Bifana goes through Italy looking for Bethlehem. On her way, she always leaves presents for good children. Some people say she does this in memory of the Bambino. Others think she is afraid she may miss him and so leaves something for each child. Italian boys and girls always know when to expect La Bifana, just as American children know when Santa Claus is coming. They write letters to ask her for things they want. The nimble old woman slides down chimneys on her broom handle. She always leaves confections and toys in the shoes or stockings of children who mind their parents, say their prayers, and are not quarrelsome or mean. Does Bambino, does that mean baby? Yeah. Oh, that, that explains a lot. Yes. Okay. Yes, Bambino Yezu, the Christ child. All right. Um, all right, okay, That that's going to wrap us up for this week. Uh, we're back next week. We're going to do our Christmas ghost story episode. Um, we hope you've enjoyed this uh, episode, which was mostly letters, and then Mark being uh, very well-researched. On, on He's probably got dozens of stories he didn't get to. <laughs> a uh, few. Yeah. Okay, uh, thanks for listening. We're back next week. Go watch The Mark of the Bell Witch. Yes. All right. Bye. Monsteropolis is proudly presented on Wadsworth Community Radio 97.1 FM or streaming live at wadsworthcommunityradio.com. It is proudly underwritten by Thurber's Jewelers on the Square in downtown Wadsworth.